welcome everybody to episode 1819 of Wood Air and Metal, the exclusive interview with uh, Dr. Mark Worrell. Worrell. <clears throat> My intro was better the first time. I wasn't uh, sitting there uh, hitting the record button, so I'm trying to come up with those killer lines I had at first. But just like the amazing Jimi Hendrix tech takes that got lost in the masters, that's also gone. So we are forever without it. But on a good note, we are recording now, and Dr. Mark <laughs> allegedly, <Lowe is> us. <laughs> allegedly, uh, Tim uh, Tim has yet to prove it, but I'm going to take his word for it. But he is with us. He is a d- retired doctor of sociology with and an outstanding musician, which just serves to enhance his understanding of sociology because music is everything. And he is here to join us after hearing our last podcast and us stepping into the whole society of or us. Uh, Spectacle culture commentary and all that. So we are here to ask questions, glean what he has to say about it, and just hear about all those wonderful things in regards to music. So with no further ado (laughs) and recording, (laughs) we're doing it. Here we go. This is is actually live. Okay. (laughs) So the last episode dealt with uh, spectacle and things spectacular. And I think I dropped a a link to, a, I don't remember now, a Wikipedia page or something about uh, the, the semi-famous writer Guy Debord, who is, um, you know... Well, so was he a sociologist or what? Well, he was a college dropout, is what he was. So, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, you know, he's, I think, uh, he wasn't in university very long, but... You probably would describe him more as um, a philosopher, I guess, loosely. Yeah. I mean, with the French, it's never, you know, so cut and dry with regard to specialization and, and things like that, especially back then. Um, you know, if he was if he was alive today and he'd gotten a degree or something, I don't know what he would be, sociologist, philosopher. Yeah, sure. I'm not entirely sure, but... Um, so he uh, he was born in like the early 30s and uh, published this book, Society of the Spectacle, in 1967, I believe. And uh, it was uh, he was an important guy, and uh, the book was important and it was pretty influential uh, with uh, students. Um, you know, in the the spring of '68 was a, a sort of a monumental time in in, in France and in the United States as well. You know, Vietnam was red hot. The civil rights movement was red hot. The student anti war movement. Uh, you know, political assassinations, all that stuff going on. And um, I don't know when this book was translated into English. It wasn't too terribly long uh, after that. Some point in the early '70s. So. College students in America would have been reading it by easily by the mid seventies. But was right. it being taught, or is it more like an underground sort of thing that was passed yeah, around? It would have been taught probably in some graduate programs. Yeah, in you know a few places in America, there were always you know like Berkeley, for example, mm-hmm. uh, would probably be a place where it was uh, you know taught in a few graduate courses or something like that. But I don't, I, I couldn't tell you right. for sure. But anyway, you know, like, so your last podcast was dealing with, you know, what is a spectacle, mm-hmm. you know? And this guy had a, a really interesting book. The whole book, as I said, in the previous version of this, when we got going, 
you know, I said this book is a little breathless. He hyperventilates a little bit. And it's an uneven text. The first couple of chapters are really the best. In the middle of the book, it gets kind of irrelevant from today's standpoint. And at the end, he tries to, to bring it back home. But um, it's really interesting. I, I tried so is it, a, is it an observational book or is... Oh, it's like, all theory. It's pretty yeah. abstract theoretical stuff. When I, I I tried to read it first when I was a graduate student, and uh, you know, it was I was a little overwhelmed, to say the least, because I just didn't I hadn't spent all those years reading all the material that's kind of presupposed okay. in this text. Um, I mean, he was probably in his late thirties when he published this book, so he'd been reading a lot. And yeah. really active and engaged with uh, intellectual movements in France at the time. So he's well-versed. He's read a lot. He understands quite a bit. Is this a f flow out of the, the Derrida and Foucault and those guys? Like, are his ideas kind of, like, based off of – because if I'm, I'm – I'm weary of the dates, but I think those are around the same time frame. But I think Foucault and Derrida and the critical theory thing was before – at least in the terms of the postmodernist thought before his, is this like a branch out of that or is he kind of like coming up at the same time? I think actually he's more influential on those currents than they were on him. Okay. Like both, you've heard of Baudrillard probably. Jean Baudrillard. I think so. Yeah. yeah. He, you know, I think a lot of what Baudrillard, Baudrillard had a couple of good ideas and, and you could probably find them in here. Okay. You know, before, I think Baudrillard's big stuff started coming out um, a few years after this book, but you can you can tell they're circulating in the same kind of intellectual environment. Okay. Yeah. You know, um, but anyways, this guy he writes this book, Society of the Spectacle, and uh, you know he's asking you know what there's something different about this. If you want to call it postmodern world, if we want to use that term, he's like, there's something really different going on than what we had in the past, and uh, a lot of a lot of what's going on here is, uh, you know, if you if you haven't had the background in it, you're missing a lot of the references to like Hegelian philosophy. Marx is obvious; he's you know he's kind of a Marxist type. And, uh, and there's references to Freud, and there's uh, quotations from Feuerbach and all these other characters. And uh, so you, you sort of have to, like, have spent decades reading all this crap so you can, you know, you can pick so up. So you can actually read it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, like, when I was in grad school, when I started out, I hadn't read, you know, everything. And so it was like, oh, my God, I don't understand this. But uh, I pulled it back out, uh, you know, the other day. And I was like, oh, wow, this is actually a pretty good read. Um, <laughs> it, was, it, was it only, it only took yeah some years right <laughs> so so the idea of spectacle is he's saying there's something really different now and he puts it in a kind of uh kind of a, a quasi-historical argument here about what's going on and when we think spectacle you know we're thinking like extravaganza and you know the, the stuff on tv and all this and it's it's definitely related to that but it's way deeper. He's talking about almost a political economy of this that stretches back um, basically eons. Mm -hmm. um, so really the heart of it 
is in the like chapter two or chapter three, you know, you could sum this whole book up in a, in a sense by saying that, uh, you know, the spectacle is when money emerges as a world historical power of sufficient uh, force and organization so that it, it is capable of worshiping itself. Hmm. And that, when you, when you think like that, it's like, wow, that's a really strange way of, of, of thinking about things. How could money worship itself? But, you know, it's uh, the, the great uh, sociologist, Emile Durkheim, his magnum opus was a book called Elementary Forms of Religious Life. And at the concluding uh, remarks of that book, it is a really bizarre statement he makes about sometimes the absolute just pleasures itself for the for no other reason than to do so. And it's like, what the hell is this guy talking about? You know, I mean, it's such a weird thing to say. Yeah. How can the how can the absolute pleasure itself for no other reason than just just yeah just to play? And this is exactly the kind of argument that he's making that there comes a point in historical time when money achieves such power that it takes on a lot, not only a life of its own, but a kind of autonomous power. Mm -hmm. It's what Marx would call a, a, an autonomous subject substance. You know, it's not a mystical thing out there behind the moon, but it, it achieves a kind of facticity and a power over the minds of individuals mm -hmm. that it just there's an inversion process going on, a reversal and an inversion. Instead, instead of us being the users of money, it, money becomes a user of individuals. Interesting. And so there's a whole process of becoming, in the language he uses, you know, that people become cap not only captivated, you know, when you think about spectacle, we're captivated by the images, but that we're actually captured you know, he even uses the language of subjugation and things like that. So, so this idea of spectacle is uh, is rooted in in this power of money. So, if you go back to the, you know, like when say political economists would talk about money in the 18th century and early 19th century, you know, they would talk about money as being like a tool or a symbol, things we use. Mm -hmm. Right, so money is a medium of exchange, right? That uh, you've got money, but you want pizza and beer. So you take your money and you go buy pizza and beer with it, right? So it's a medium of exchange. Or let's say you've got money, but you don't want pizza and beer until next week. You can hang on to it. And it's yeah. a store of value. And next week when you want to go buy pizza and beer, it'll be ready to be transformed into pizza and beer. So this, these are ways that we use the money. Money is a symbol money is a as a tool money is an invention right sure. no big problem and then marx is writing in capital uh volume one and, and at that point he starts talking about how money moves from being an in, merely an invention that we use to becoming a world historical power that has the capacity to overthrow all the other old gods of the world. And so there's this famous passage in Capital where money just sh kicks overboard or shoves overboard the old gods and reigns in its place. So all of a sudden, money stops being just merely an, an, invent an invention and a tool and a thing that we use. 
now becomes like some kind of almost deified thing that we worship. But it's still something we want. It's still our thing, right? And so we use money. This is where like conspicuous consumption comes from. You know, obviously, if you've got more money, you're better than other people. So what do you do? You want more money, right? Um, and then you can't just merely show people your bank statements or something like that. So you have to turn it into a larger house, a larger estate, faster cars, better clothes. Right. That's called conspicuous consumption. And that's showing everybody, wow, I've got more money than you. Right. So I've taken my money and I've converted it into other symbols and signs and things like that. Um, but at some point, this logic just keeps rolling along. And so you get an inversion from money is a thing we use to satisfy our needs, like pizza and beer, or to satisfy our desires like prestige, right? So we're moving from needs to wants, and then over time, money becomes so important that the means and the ends become completely inverted. And it's no longer what we want or need, it's what money wants and needs huh. right so instead of us using money to satisfy our needs or desires money becomes so such an autonomous global power that it simply starts utilizing human beings to satisfy its own needs mm -hmm. so he's not they're not making so this is hegel and durkheim marx etc even freud is is implicated in this the idea of, of collective consciousness, collective unconsciousness. How can money have a mind? How can money want something? That sounds bizarre, right? That doesn't make any sense. Money can't want anything. But what they're saying is that um, it's a peculiar form of consciousness that emerges in late modernity, or if you want to call it post-modernity, right? That things have become so fetishized, and by all they mean by that is mystified. Yeah. Right, if things become so mystified and incomprehensible, and has such a kind of ontic depth to it that there's no way you could unravel this stuff. Uh, you can't penetrate it with thought. You can't understand it. Everything is confusing. Everything is basically upside down and backwards. So constantly in this book, there's a talk about inversions, reversals, you know, things like and separation. In other words, we. we we become so alienated, we can't figure anything out. And we lose track and sight of the fact that, that all this stuff is due to our, the way that we're related to one another and the way that we produce things and consume things. And pretty soon, the whole world seems to us as if it's just a, a power completely out of our control, that it's calling the shots, it's pulling the levers, and we're just acting or responding mm -hmm. to these completely external and objective forces that sort of dictate fatalistically how we you know how we how we move about in the world so it seems like almost to an extent that it, and obviously correct me if I'm, I'm i'm steering in the wrong direction here but from what you're, the concept of what you're talking about money and being a, it's a, autonomous unto its own self and it's a self-feeding goal it seems like that the uh almost that that's piggybacking on an evolutionary concept of survival of the fittest, not in the sense of like, you know, the strongest win everything, but the, what works that, that would work, that which works 
continues to survive. And with money being that dominant force that kind of came up as a medium of exchange, you know, throughout human history, whether it's a denarii or whatever, to, to where we have the petrodollar and so on, um, that it, it eventually got to a point to where that evolutionary drive and status of humanity that we do different things to just to get biologically rated to, you know, look at me, I have a fast car that will attract X mate or something. You know, I, I'm clearly trying to put it in the terms that I can grasp. Um, but like you have that aspect of it and then it eventually that drive combined with the evolutionary drive just morphed into something where it's an automatic automatic self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, uh, uh, of the money being the status symbol, which at the same time, since it's a status symbol and there's the evolutionary drive behind it, has the need to get more money to increase its status symbol so it can, can increase more money to get its status symbol to get more. And then that's how you put your stamp of fit and whether it's for a evolutionary mate or whether it's for just to make yourself look good, but that's kind of, that's not a separate thing. It's one thing, you know, whether that's for evolutionary fitness or just status, that is how it kind of became this uh, thing unto itself. And that's where we're sitting in the spectacle kind of watching it. I mean, in one sense, it sounds like it's, you just described what is kind of going on in a sense with TikTok as, uh, and I'm not on it much, but you know, my, my <laughs> wife and my kids like watching the silly videos on it. And as I'm watching it, I'm going, these kids are just stupid rich. You know, it's like, they're, they're not, don't, not my kids, but like some of the kids, it's like, you look at their house. It's like, that is stinking gigantic. What, and now they're doing these silly videos in order to get more attention. Well, so, they, you know, obviously they have better equipment, more yeah. means probably somebody editing it whatever <laughs> and exactly and it so keeps that, feeding itself man. yeah it's eating it it's the uh, what is it hubris uh, i'm killing the name the snake that eats its own tail uh, in north mythology um but the uh it seems like that's kind of the picture that you're painting of what uh i'm gonna butcher gee's last name um yeah. Gita board is going with, at least from the descriptions that you're going with, and my distilling that down to what my brain can currently handle right now. I think, I think maybe I missed one. Maybe I didn't hear you say it, though, but I, and maybe I'm wrong in my interpretation here, but it sounded like what you said too, Mark, was that it's not even just like that evolutionary, like I want to be a strong mate sort of thing, but almost like an unconscious yeah. Um, thing that just happens like you spend the money because you like you don't even really think about it you're not thinking like I'm doing this to improve my status it, it's just using you because you have it kind of thing yeah I mean it, 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 there is an evolutionary process you might think but it's kind of reversed there's a selection process going on so you find it with YouTube and TikTok and all this other stuff Instagram you know only a certain percentage of the population will select itself out to participate in this. I mean, which is, you know, granted is wildly narcissistic culture. Yeah. Look at me, look at me, look at me thing. And really, you know, you can say, well, these people are like using the social media platform or something like that. But really, you know, Google owns all this stuff and they're obviously using these people. Yep. You know, yeah. Some people can make some pretty good dough on this, but you think how much Google is making from this stuff, you know, at least on YouTube. So, um, 
Yeah. So a lot of a lot of it. The one thing that the, the board would say is a lot of this is just appearance and illusion. So illusion is an important uh, aspect of this book too. I mean, at one point he just basically says uh, things become so mystified we're like living in a in like a hologram or something like that. It's it's almost like delusional hypnosis and things like that. So a lot of what you see, I noticed on on. Um, you know, Facebook and uh, and YouTube, a lot of it is just appearance. You know, we had this conversation one time before. Um, you know, it's like, well, if you want to be rich and famous on YouTube, you have to already be rich and famous right. on YouTube. So, well, you know, so then, well, how do you do that, right? So you see some people have great YouTube channels with, you know, a million subscribers. And when you go to their new video and it's got like, Oh, you know, 87,000 views. And I mean, it's like, how do these people do this? Well, how do you start a channel, right? If you go to somebody's channel, like, oh, welcome to my channel. Watch this. And it's like, oh, he's got, it's like my YouTube channel. Like what I have like a hundred subscribers, you know, and like this sure. video has received 14 views, no thumbs up, no thumbs down, no comments, you know? So when you go on to something like that, I mean, I don't even give a shit, but that's just the way it is. Yeah. When you go to a video like that, are you going to watch it? You're not going to like this. Obviously, there's nothing going on here. Right. So you don't even bother. Yeah, there's a bias when you see, right. oh, there's only 14 views, so it's not important. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is obviously there's nothing going on here. No. In other words, no one's paying attention to it. Mm -hmm. So you have to basically, no matter what it is, you have to create the, the illusion that people are paying attention to it. So how do you do that? So if you wanted to get a YouTube channel up off the ground, you have to spend some money to create the illusion that people are paying attention to you. So like there's one guy, I mean, he's basically, I don't know if he, if he's really, really as dumb as he seems, or if he's just, he's, he's good enough of a troll, but he's got like, you know, tens of thousands of subscribers on YouTube. And he's obvious. I mean, he just plays like a total moron. And all he does is troll like fractal audio, Friedman amps, et cetera. So he gets a hold of the product. He opens it up and just like, he just points to things. Hmm, I don't know. I don't know about that. You know, what's this? I don't know. Would you pay for that? I don't know. It just like, it's just the most insane thing you've ever seen. But there's like, Thumbs up everywhere, lots of comments, lots of subscribers. And you just think, how can, can people be that stupid? Is, can people really be that dumb? And then you realize, well, okay, if you wanted to do that, all you have to do is create the appearance first that people take you seriously and they're watching. Sure. So as it turns out, you can buy, uh, what, you can buy a thousand YouTube subscribers for like what? I mean, it's like pennies on the dollar. I mean, it's virtually free. You just go buy them. Right. You want you want subscribers that make comments and leave comments. You just pay for it. You there's monthly subscriptions, right? So there's yeah, like, that's watch. an interesting like. So the illusion too is that you think well, so and so didn't do that, or some, or even more like. I'm sure McDonald's would never do that. Why would they ever do that? But of course they do, right? They spend tons of money oh, sure. to make sure that every single one of their videos or commercials is successful. Absolutely. You know, yeah. So like I watch uh, some drumming videos sometimes and there's one guy, he's just, 
He's just wearing a dirty white T-shirt, and he's down in a dark basement. He's not even very good, but he's just like, yeah, I'm going to tell you how to be a, a total pro, you know? And he's got bazillions of subscribers and bazillions of views, and you're just like, this doesn't make any sense, you know? When there's so many, you know, good yeah. videos out there, how does this guy get attention? And the fact is he probably doesn't get attention. He's probably just has a, a budget for social media to create the illusion that people are actually paying attention to him. So you see the good stuff, nobody's paying attention to it. And then you got, you know, uh, a trolling clown <laughs> that delivers like nothing of substance and people are paying attention to it. And he's all over the web too, because people get outraged and then sure. they drop links to it all over the web. Can you believe this guy? And then everybody's watching it. Right? And everybody is. They're all popular. saying, that guy's an asshole. <laughs> you know, but all they're doing is driving attention yep. to it by being yeah, just sure. an incompetent. Well, all press troll. is good press, right? That too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you've seen guys like this too. They have these like gear channels. And all that, the guitar's not even in tune. It's just a wall of amps surrounded by amps. <laughs> a complete hack can't play a lick the guitar's not even in tune and they put out you know two three videos a day hey it's me i'm back and right. today we're checking and then, out and then they also thing. have the budget for endless amount of pedals and whatever else right so they're yeah, sure. constantly get a new stream of gear like oh look right, at the so new two rock i got and i got this new prs and then i got this you know and then finally track down this crazy manufacturer think about it if yeah. you're a manufacturer and you make pedals or guitars or amps or something like that, you kind of almost live in mortal fear that, you know, some trolling clown is going to like, no, today we're going to check out the thing. And you're looking over there, you got, the dude's got a half a million subscribers. Right. And this video is going to get 50,000 views or something. Oh my God, I don't want to deal with this shit. Right. Mm -hmm. So then you're, you're instantly now this guy becomes self-important or there's the illusion right. that this guy. As important that he has some kind and of then link. you look at the like the endorsements now, right? A lot of the endorsements are people who've never been on a stage in their life or put out an album. But yeah, they have popular YouTube channels, person. right? Yeah. The, the demo sense. fusion guys with yeah. their own signature guitars, right? <laughs> I mean, it's like a it's like guitar shop employee heaven, right. like strike. Yeah, you, know, you hit the lotto. You're just a guy who works in a guitar shop, and then through the magic of YouTube, you know, you get a deal with uh, with a major company for your own signature guitar which is perfect for youtube videos right <laughs> it's it's not stage ready yeah right but this all this all comes back to this idea of spectacle like this as he says in his book the signifier becomes completely separated from anything signified in other words like we're saying where's the beef you know where's the substance to this we're post substance. Yeah. It's not about substance. It's not about can you play? Do you have experience? That's gone. All that matters now is the free play of images, the autonomous free play of images, and the illusion that there's actually something going on. Yeah. Right. And almost having real substance, you know, you might think of it as a bonus, but it might actually even detract. I mean, it's better just to have like an enigmatic image that makes no sense whatsoever. Like you're trying to wrap your mind around how this clown can have, you know, a million viewers or something. It's like you just cannot imagine how this is happening, right? It's almost better than knowing, oh, the guy, you know, 
he toured with so-and-so or, yeah. you know, it's better just to have no backstory at all. It makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> it becomes even more mysterious, right? Right. And more mystifying. And that's part of the, that's the allure of the spectacle. You know, that's, it's even more captivating. So here, here we are right now in the podcast and we're not talking about the guys uh, or, and the women and whoever delivering good content and things of substance because that stuff's out there on youtube yeah but instead we get we get lured into talking about trolling clowns and and demo noodlers with no more experience than just selling guitars in a guitar shop hmm. well but it's also interesting i guess right and maybe that's the whole thing yeah, it's fascinating stuff honestly it's literally like walking a train wreck <laughs> Right, it's like you can't look. You can't not look at the disaster, right? right? Yep. What what was the comment on that video we watched that this came from? Where he said, "Isn't it interesting that American Idol got super popular as soon as they started showing the you know the incompetent singers?" Right. Oh yeah, I remember that. I don't know who that was. That was the Ali Jackson video. Yeah, Ali Jackson. Interesting. So, So it's fascinating. So all you really need. And I thought about doing this. It's like what we ought to do is everybody pool together their resources and create like a, a composite, completely imaginary character. You know, doesn't exist really in time or space at all. It's just a complete fabrication. But everybody just injects time, money, energy, whatever into this thing. And you could you could prop this thing up on YouTube or social media in general and create something that actually takes on a life of its own. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know? The guy that did that though. There is a band I, I don't maybe you sent me the article today. One of my friends sent me an article about a guy that literally created a band that didn't exist. And hired people to play like you created the band created all the branding for it oh you're talking about that dude that went on tour and you're yes Yes. did you remember that i think you saw that mark the what was that guy's name god i can't remember his name but he like did all this uh all this promo videos and like youtube things and massive amounts of followers and everything else and created the illusion that he was this big deal and so he booked this tour throughout europe and (laughs) go with him and like nobody yeah there'd be like three people at the show (laughs) Like, at all. Oh they my god, that's a right. And you know, so rightly people were pissed at the guy. They're like, "What the hell?" You know. Yeah, he got all kinds of you know advances, of course. You oh, know, yeah, for- advances and all the all the stuff, and um, and so they're interviewing him after the fact, and they're like, you know, wh- why? Like, why would you do this to everybody and so on? He's like, "Don't you think that you've been lying to people?" And he's like, "How do you know that wasn't the product that I was going for to begin with?" That this right now, what you're interviewing me for is proving my point that you can do this illusion of grandeur and have everybody bite off of it and even though i'm the bad guy who are you talking to like yeah so he was in like every guitar magazine and like it like it hit the (laughs) hit the mainstream for being like a total failure and flake yeah you know it's like so he was either an evil genius or a total douche you know, it, I guess it goes hand in hand. But um, either way, he proved his point. You know, he's just, he, he did that. He played that spectacle out to the nth degree with nothing real behind it. And though, you know, it, half of me is kind of like a little bit on a side note of 
Yeah, when he actually tried to push those results into having people show up, nothing. So there was some balancing to it, at least in the physical world, of having to show up and see a concert. Nobody went. But he still had the the press and the illusion of stuff on YouTube. So there was a clear disconnect between the image on YouTube and the reality of where this guy was going career-wise. Yeah. You know, so... He wasn't yeah. cashing in yet, I think is what you're saying, right? He w- he's been spending the money. He had some kind of illusion of grandeur, but he hadn't got any reward from it, except unless what his reward was was hoping to be in Guitar Magazine or something. <laughs> yeah, well, he's got that. So I mean, so the mistake is is you know is the, the, is Debord is describing it that now in in this in the late modern world, he I don't think he would call it the postmodern world, but the late modern world. It's just a, like an ocean or streams of, of disconnected images that are just flowing along under their own sort of power and things like that. So then the problem becomes, it's like, well, you've got this disconnect between the symbolic dimension and then as you're describing, Adam, this kind of physical reality, the real down here. And so the big problem is when you try to connect back up this free-floating domain of images and try to connect it into like oh i'm gonna actually go rent out this facility and have a concert or something in the in the real world and of course nobody shows up because you don't live in the real world you're just up here in this abstract symbolic dimension uh, where people just look at you on a screen or something like that but then what the what the spectacle is capable of doing is like oh you fell out into the real world you're exposed as the fraud that you are and then what happens it all gets woven back up into uh, uh, back into the symbolic dimension. So in other words, you know, the spectacle is capable of uh, repairing any kind of injury to itself. Right. Oh, this, something's fallen out of, of the stream of images. It's fallen flat into the material dimension. I'll bring it back up. Right. Or we, uh, three guys want to have a podcast and talk shit about me. <laughs> yeah, right. right? So, so what am I going to do? Right. So I, the critique of spectacle is always already built into the spectacle. So what's going to happen is, oh, all three guys get to bad mouth the spectacle or spectacular culture or something like that. Well, don't worry. There's a, there's a free space for that. You can do that. It's not going to do any harm. Mm-hmm. to the to the spectacle plus we'll be undoubtedly punished for this in in some symbolic way right we always anytime you you know you run afoul of the spectacle you'll have to receive some kind of punishment for it <laughs> well, thumb, from zero to zero down. <laughs> there's a dislikes watch this, this. Right thumbs here. down this guy's a total loser yeah right <laughs> Exactly. Oh man, yeah, he's just—he's just a jealous bitch. He doesn't have a signature guitar. <laughs> Damn right. Yeah, right. I want my signature model. I want my signature model guitar. Yeah. Even though yeah. no one pays attention in guitar, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I had a point to make, but I totally lost it in the spectacle here. Um, what was it? Da, da, da. It's picking back and it'll pop up, you know, when Tim's not recording. I did, again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> maybe maybe the Mac won't get in the way. Um. <laughs> Here we go. That's fine. <laughs> I, I saw something in the article thing that you sent me, the wiki wiki thing. Um, 
and maybe I misread this, but it said something about the way to stop spectacle in a sense is with another spectacle. So like it was kind of yeah, like I don't, I don't one way that. to fight this spectacle is to fight it with some different spectacle. So you can, so kind of like the, like Trump or something like that. Like you get this, this thing that people just follow, but how do you, how do you thwart that from happening? Well, that would not be the board's position at all. Interesting. I mean, keep in mind, the, the board's a communist who believes yeah. in the proletarian revolutional. That's like <laughs> the middle of the book is this, you know, it's, it's really outdated stuff about, proletarian consciousness, working class consciousness, revolutionary classes and all that stuff. And, um, you know, really that's what critical theory was all about. You know, Karl Marx, you know, made these pronouncements about what was going to happen in the future. Obviously he wrote the Communist Manifesto and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, when he wrote the Communist Manifesto, there were, he was workers of the world united. There were no workers of the world, right? So it's, it's kind of just like make-believe sort of thing. And of course, when the workers yeah. of the world finally did unite, uh, they slaughtered each other on the battlefields of Europe, you know? Yeah. Right? Because <laughs> they hate each other, you know? And it's like, you know, so the question of critical theory was like, what happened, right? The workers of the world were supposed to unite, overthrow their capitalist oppressors and all that stuff. And they were all basically Nazis or fascists and tried to kill each other. <laughs> and... Uh, so what's going on here? So critical theory was basically an intellectual movement to try to understand basically what's wrong with the working class, you know, and it's definitely not uh, into board's worldview. It's not spectacle versus spectacle, really. It's not going to be clashes of uh, spectacular clashes of, of that sort of uh, thing that's going on. For him, it was about a revolutionary movement. You know, but he's also not a dummy. I mean, he's writing after World War II. They've already seen the horrors of Nazism and fascism and all that. So he's not naive. But just because you're not naive doesn't mean you, you're not also, you know, buying into the, you know, what's expected of you as a, as a Marxist, so to speak. You still, you still have to have some kind of faith in the working class. So how do you think that, well, two things. One, what do you think Guy would think of how spectacle plays into the music scene? Kind of, kind of, kind of pull this into the the whole thing that we were, were talking last time. And secondly, what do you think? You know how that applies with that? Yeah, and can I can I add an addendum to that? Which is so that was in '68 or whatever it was written '67. '67. Yeah. I'm assuming there's been some more thought on it since then, and maybe what's going on with that. Yeah. Um, well, so in this book, he actually just, he discusses celebrities and stars. There is a little, a smaller, a small section on that. And really, um, his discussion of that centers upon, you know, we think of like, oh, here's these stars or somebody, you know, uh, it's almost like a, a religious worship sort of thing. I mean, keep in mind, one of the concepts he starts out with in the book is the sacred. And so, you know, he's a Marxist, so you think he's talking about money and capital, and that's there to a very great extent. But behind this is a larger problem of, of what is sacred in this world, you know. And so really for all these guys, the sacred becomes the central concept 
the yeah. the ultimate problem is the the nature of the sacred. So if you talk about religion, it's only the administration of the sacred. If you're talking about the economy, it's only the distribution, the consumption of the sacred. You know, if you're talking about rituals, if you're talking about celebrities, if you're talking about you know, YouTube stars or whatever, or narcissism, or you name it, we're talking about a kind of giant universal economy of sacred, sacred energy, sacred powers, and the way they dissolve and the way that they crystallize in, into stable images that mobilizes, you know, even millions of people like QAnon now. I mean, if you're paying attention, QAnon is now rivaling mainstream religion in america as a kind wow. of galvanizing force that's so i mean this is kind of horrifying right that yeah. something can emerge so quickly and be mounted upon absurd physical structures like narcissistic buffoons and you know you're talking about tens of millions of people suffering from paranoid delusions mm -hmm. right and, and it's sure. like well what how can that be well if you read freud he just basically says well when reality becomes too painful to bear people retreat into paranoid delusions you know or joe badgett he wrote some great books well, one was called deer hunting with jesus <laughs> and the other one was called rainbow pie and these are these books are fantastic he's almost like a folk critical theorist and he basically just he talks about this too that you know, the world is like the world is too awful and too overpowering and you just can't deal with it. So you just vanish into like what he calls a hologram, you know, and a kind of alternative reality. It ties into DeBoard here yeah. because DeBoard's saying that this, this spectacle is a universe of images and representations that functions like almost like a, a hologram. You know, it's like a symbolic world apart from and autonomous from the real material world where all the real production is going on. So, can, you know, we produce and we consume. They're two sides of the same coin. And some of that goes on in the real world. You know, like your Coca-Cola has to be manufactured in some factory somewhere and shipped to your grocery store and things like that. But what are people drinking when they drink a Coke? You know, if you watch Zizek video, he's like, he's great. He's like, he's got his can of Coke. He's out in the desert. Coca-Cola, it's the, it's the real thing. And he drinks it. The more I drink, the thirstier I get. What actually am I trying to get out of this? Because it's not really doing what I, I think it's going to do, quench my thirst. I want, it, Coke calls itself the real thing. And I'm, I'm trying to get the enigmatic thing, the real out of this coca-cola and of course it's not there but you're never going to admit this is just carbonated water some whatever right. so, you know and remember sprite had this commercial one time image is nothing thirst is everything mm -hmm. that's All the right. spectacle building in its own negation which then negates itself again because the real message is of course thirst doesn't mean crap image is everything and the more sprite you drink the thirstier you get right it's it's a the emperor has no is, clothes kind of thing right it's everything like, is a contradiction everything is backwards everything is upside down everything is reversed right oh you're thirsty drink this you're gonna be even thirstier right 
oh, you need a guitar? Buy this one. As soon as you get it, you don't care about it. You're going to need another one. <laughs> well, right? uh, what? Don't look behind me. Yeah, yeah exactly. Shh. Yeah. Like, we blurred yeah, our backgrounds, more, right? Yeah. 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 So in the spectacle world, the more you get, the more you want. It's insatiable desires. Yeah. You can never have enough. You want it all. Right. That, that reminds me, I had a roommate in New York City, and his ex-wife was a supermodel, and then she became a supermodel agent, right? And they would go to these parties, and, um, you know, there's a lot of fabulous, fabulously wealthy people there. And he said it was actually really sad, because you had the millionaires talking to the 10 millionaires, and they wanted to be 10 millionaires, and the 10 millionaires were talking to the 100 millionaires, and they wanted to be hundred millionaires, and the hundred millionaires talking to billionaires, and they like had to be billionaires. Like it was never enough. So they'd be like, "Oh, I just bought a jet." And they're like, "Oh, what'd you get? Oh, I got a you know a twenty seater or whatever." Oh, I used to have one of those, uh, you know, some years ago. Now I have a seventy three seater. You really got to get a seventy three seater, you know? Like it was never enough. Like it just kept. Even if you get to that ten million dollars or a hundred million dollars or a billion dollars, then you just need more of it. And it was it's kind of a fascinating thought. Oh, absolutely. Maybe. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like when Led Zeppelin got their jet. Right. You then know, every other band one. needed one, right? Yeah. All of a sudden, who, who had their own jet? Also, Led, I guess Led Zeppelin's the first one to have their, their big jumbo jet or something like that. It's right. like, what, what actually, something changed in the world when Led Zeppelin bought a jet. I think that was 1972. And in, at one point, I had an idea for a book just called 1972. <laughs> and it wasn't simply that Led Zeppelin bought a jet, right? It was that everything else in the world was shifting or rotating on a pivot at that moment in time. You know, Vietnam was pretty much all but lost at that point. The whole Fordist system of production and consumption was breaking down in this neo, neo Fordist, neoliberal world that we live in now was emerging. Uh, everything was everything was changing in 1972 it's about the time the gold standard we went off of that yeah. you know and people talk about gold standard right and they think oh it's gold is like yeah. the magic thing here like yeah. the gold standard but it wasn't gold isn't magic it was it was the standard part mm -hmm. <laughs> in other words the you know gold was just this material thing that actually kind of like connected the symbolic dimension to the physical world into the yep. into the reality and it's like well you know they realized well we live in a spectacle world we can't have this kind of restraint this is like having a millstone around our neck mm -hmm. right so it's like we need to separate money uh as this thing that circulates from this stuff that sets around in a vault somewhere yeah. So you separate that, and now you've got money that just kind of, you know, and it goes to like the board's argument here that when you when you leave the standard and the material behind, you you enter a new kind of world mm -hmm. where things take on even more bizarre autonomous powers than they had before. And of course, now you don't even need physical currency. Mm -hmm. You know, you just uh, at some point you just need a number in your head or now just a mouse click and you're exchanging bits and bytes or whatever for, you know, new guitars that arrive. Custom <laughs> private stocks. Exactly. <laughs> but do you think that, um, 
because one of the things that, that keeps popping up in my head with this is that is there a degree of anthropomorphizing i'm butchering the pronunciation or, was that right anthropomorphizing yeah i'm gonna yeah, go okay um the, yeah, thank you <laughs> but is there a degree of anthropomorphizing the object to the point of giving them the spectacle that's it's basically dependent on the human condition and observation. Yeah, well, so this this actually ties back into the, the thing about the celebrity and the star. You know, he, he would basically say that, you know, in the old model, you might say, um, um, you know, we're, anthrop we're projecting ourselves into the spectacle dimension and, and, and attributing it to it, human qualities or something like that. It's a kind of vague and abstract way of thinking about it, but his argument would actually be kind of the reverse of that, that you, you crossed beyond this point where celebrities and stars become what he calls, I think, I think the word he actually uses is they become personifications of the spectacle itself. I mean, nobody now wants to go to a spectacle and see a person, right? I mean, that's True. like, or even personified spectacle. You don't want to see person. You don't want to, you know, there's, you know, they're not even personalities anymore. It's something weirder and more enigmatic. I mean, the most successful pop stars and celebrities are essentially, if you look at it, if you think about all their qualities, they're basically monstrous. They're like freak shows, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, they, they, you don't want to go see the normal or even the abnormal. You want to see something totally bizarre. Mm -hmm. That's in a sense, inhuman, not superhuman even, but kind of inhuman. Not, you know, just like they, this is something else from another dimension entirely that's yeah. coming at us, right? And, and then we're, we're participating in the, the autonomous free flow of the spectacle itself. The last thing you want to run into is a real person. I, yeah, you know, that seems like, in, in one sense, it seems the, the self-feeding spectacle, and uh, again, correct me if I'm, I'm going off in a, in a different direction, but it seems like it's the same idea of the, the growth of musical variety. Because, you, you know, you start out with like the earliest stuff of the, the um, like the 10th century of choral music, and then it moves into the Renaissance, and then into the Baroque, and then the Baroque into the classical. And all the previous stuff was so commonly heard to an extent that everybody was kind of like, eh, all right. And then, you know, the, the next movement, the classical movement comes along, it's like, whoa, that's different. And now we look back, and then the Romantics look back on the classical, like, that was nice, but we're kind of pushing it. And then the serialism on the Romanticism and so on and so forth, you know, ad nauseum, like, it's one of the things that I tell my students is like, you have to realize that every musical era was a pushback against the thing that came before it. You know, that's why you get minimalism coming after aleatoric and serialism is because you had super strict things with serial craziness with aleatoric and then minimalism being like, okay, we're done with the crazy getting back to just a C chord for an hour. That's it. You know, um, <laughs> you have this, this, or when you're out on the highway somewhere and it's sounds of space, yeah, five <laughs> hours of ambient music at night in your car alone. 
<laughs> exactly. But do you think that the, in that yeah, regard man. with the spectacle, because we're always kind of pushing against the what has come before to an extent, that's always what a younger generation kind of does, that we're kind of pushing, we've pushed from the uh, inhuman and abnormal to the, the monstrous because nothing else gets our attention. Yeah, like, I mean, like, it's, it's right, got to be something pretty crazy to get our attention. Right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Otherwise, and then the, the and then of course the standard is always moving because mm-hmm. as soon as you do one thing, I mean, you see this all the time, and like they used to have those TV shows. You know, it was like Jackass or something, <laughs> and it's like the problem with those shows is like how much damage can you do to yourself, right? right? And you have to keep and, up in the ante. and then you just have yeah, so you have to become more destructive, and then pretty soon no one's satisfied until someone dies. Mm-hmm. You know, so like, it, unless someone's going to die here, I don't have time. To watch this. <laughs> you know, I got to see somebody's head explode, or you know, let's give me. The, I want the payoff here. So then, so then, the, yeah, the bar keeps moving. That there, there might be what monstrous I was, direction. What I know. thought I saw before was the the spectacle to beat the spectacle sort of thing. Like you, you almost push the bounds. And the only way to do that, or like the only way to stop one spectacle is to do something crazier that slows that spectacle down to move on to the next thing. Yeah, Maybe not the only just, thing, but it seems That's to- just spectacle building into itself its own kind of dynamism, mm-hmm. you know, that it, it can keep perpetuating itself with inventing new novelties and things like that. Yeah, it's, it sounds like a feedback loop, you know, it's just like it, it keeps literally just feeding it back into itself. So every there's no more music, there's just noise, but that's just, and it, you can't stop it. There's no off button, there's no mute switch, there's no Mac crashing, you know, it just well, and So this actually, this, this plugs into something he talks about in this book directly, and that's that really, I mean, spectacle, how does it really exhaust itself? when it has unlimited resources, because essentially what's going on here is the spectacle, uh, what is the energy source for it? If you want to use that kind of like, uh, you know, matrix imagery, you know, it's like, well, it's human life Mm -hmm. being transferred from individuals and the the peculiar organization of human life under the spectacle. So in this book, a big thing is separation, atomization. It's uh, dividing everybody up. So that you, and it's almost like that movie, The Matrix thing, where they're just in their little pods and they're sucking out the energy, sort of thing. It's kind of like crude metaphor. But um, in this book, basically, what he's talking about is that for the spectacle to live, all the people who are fixated on it and captivated by it have, are basically committing slow motion suicide, <laughs> transferring their energies and their lives and giving it to the spectacle oh absolutely so that it can live and perpetuate itself so the only limit to spectacle is the amount of carcasses that it can pile up and even uses he quotes i can't remember i think he quotes marx and he talks about how essentially human beings are just reduced to like carcasses in a spectacle regime so spectacle isn't just oh this thing we're paying attention to it's an entire regime of accumulation, production, consumption, and there's sort of like the self-perpetuation of the symbolic order, everything trying to get your attention. Because once it's got your attention, out comes the money, the time, the energy, and people become dispossessed. I mean, just think about if you go to a concert, like primitive religious rituals, you know, the primitive, the so-called primitives would get together periodically and they would 
build fires and dance around it for days, right? And essentially what they were, they were getting back, you know, in a sense, as much or more that they were putting into it. So they would become energized and they would have enough symbolic reserves, if you will, to sustain themselves for long periods of time while they were out hunting and gathering. And then they would reconvene mm -hmm. and go through, you know, these uh, violent uh, prolonged rituals and they would get like re-energized. And now the exact opposite is the case under the spectacle. You know, you go to some concert in the desert or whatever for two days and you get there and you're, you're, you're like all excited and I can't wait for it to begin. And then what, 18 hours later, you feel like you're about to die and you leave early and you know, it's like your ears are ringing, you're puking, you're hungover. Yeah, you, you, know, stink. Remember, yeah, like, right. yeah. you know, you, you go, it's like, Oh, I went to see Dylan and I left after one song. It sucks so bad. You know, it's like, <laughs> that's, that's spectacle. It drains it out of you. It punishes you. You feel bad. You don't feel energized. You don't get anything out of it. You just feel like, wow, I just went to like some vampires, you know, <laughs> castle. And I was there and it just, it just sucked it out of you. Your money's gone. Your energy's gone. Your hearing's gone, right? Everything sucks. Yeah. And then you just leave disgusted. Yeah. That's I mean, really, that's really the invert, the reversal. Yeah. Oh, it's completely inverted. I mean, that, that, that's exactly what it is in terms of a representation of, you know, to some extent what human life is. That's, that is a, and rather than being energized through an interaction, it's taking from you. That's, I mean, it's why I don't really hop on Facebook or any of the social media to the extent is I just got to a point where I'm like, I'm just draining myself. It's like, I don't come out of this being like, Oh, this, that was a good thing to do. You know, so it much just, better. Yeah. Yeah, I feel so much better. I think <laughs> great after this. No, it's, well, it's really I mean, it, that's it's it's objectively the case that social media. Uh, there's a guy who wrote a book a couple of years ago. It, it hasn't been out long, and he yeah, he was a guy who who helped to engineer some early social media sites, and he basically says social media has been engineered to make everyone miserable except <laughs> one group. Yeah. And that's people who spend advertising dollars. Mm -hmm. If the only person who can be happy with social media are advertisers. And then, of course, the people profiting from it, you know, sucking in the money. Yeah. But so if you're on social media, like this is going to be on YouTube. Right. right? And people are going to, there's going to be two people watching. <laughs> right? You made it this far. And Give us a thumbs up. This is the snoozecast version, right? And so think about it. Somebody's going to watch this, and they're not spending advertising dollars, and they're just going to leave from this like the, just it's horrible, right? Just makes you miserable. But think about how how many times have you seen something on social media, whether it's Facebook or YouTube or whatever, and it's like you see it, and it's supposed to be good, and you're supposed to get excited, and you just feel. It's like revolting. Sure. Just like, God, I hate this. I, you know, and it's like, you're not, but you're not really the audience. It's like, it's just taking something away from you that you didn't want to give up. Have you noticed there's a, a trend in some videos right now where they never get to the payoff. They just make you watch for like eight minutes. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, you're going to, the way these shoes come out or something like that, you know, or whatever we're going <laughs> to. And then at the end, like they just don't show you. They <laughs> Right. It, it's going to be a mess, but some pe people just keep watching anyway. 
So they, I mean, nothing, nothing makes sense in yeah. social media, like unboxing videos. Oh, sure. Oh, you got a new guitar or whatever it is, a pair of shoes or something. And it's like the whole video is just watch me unbox the thing. Right. And you, you think this has to be the dumbest thing on earth? Like, <laughs> who is stupid enough not only to watch it, but who's stupid enough to actually shoot this video? Yeah. And then it's like, they got like tens of thousands of views, you know, and it's like, uh, what is going on here? Or uh, some lady has a channel and all she does is eat mass quantities of food. And you're just supposed to watch this person eating or overeating, you know, and it's like, why is anyone paying attention to this? Sort yeah. Of why would you even do it? Why would you Which, do it? So it's kind of like it, what you were saying before about um, you get the money in your pocket and even if like if you could somehow step out of it, you'd be like, "Oh, I really don't need that thing." Like, I'm I'm totally fine. I really don't need it. But somehow, because there's like this, it's like an unconscious need to to use it. So the, the money's telling you you got to spend the money. I mean, you got it. You got to use it. Money isn't money unless it's in circulation. Right. Right. I mean, think about it. I mean, he even talks about this sort of stuff in the book. You know, that he basically says in here that uh, in Spectacle Society, it's your duty to buy. Mm -hmm. You can't, you just can't have your money sitting around like in a bank or in, in your mason jar in your backyard. That's right. not money. If you put money in a jar and bury it in your backyard, it's not money. Right? It's not in circulation. So the, the imperative, he says, in Spectacle Society is, you must work and you must consume. You have a duty. And what he says is, and this is really interesting, in the world of work where you produce, you're treated like either a donkey or a child. Mm -hmm. Think about it. You know, Marx talks a lot about brutalization and cretinism, you know, and, and stuff like that. In other words, you go to work and they treat you like a donkey or a child, you know? So, and you hate going to, to your job site. In fact, there've been cases where like uh, assembly line workers are forced to wear diapers, like instead of going to use the bathroom. Yeah, right. you have so to they wear don't a yeah, get off the line, yeah. I mean, so you go to work, you're treated like an animal or a child. But when you go to spend your money, they treat you like you're a, an adult, a, a human being. So there's this weird, separation between the production and the consumption. So you never get to feel like a human being or an adult unless you consume Spend the money. Yeah. Right. So you get treated like a donkey when you go to work, but when you get out, right. And now you're the consumer, the king consumer where you expect special customer service and satisfaction. You want to, you want to feel like, Oh man, I'm, I'm a special person. And so all the time you see us on websites, you go to the gear page or something and there's always some thread, you know, on page one, man, you know, total props to, you know, a guitar pedal supreme.net or whatever <laughs> for amazing customer service. Joe Blow bent over backwards because he didn't have, at the time, he didn't have the Sapphire special button for my pedal. But he, you know, he moved heaven and earth to get me a replacement, whatever. You know, it's like, what the fuck is this guy even going on about? Sure. <laughs> this amazing customer service over some piece of shit pedal. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, well, so why do people get 
worked up over stuff like that because finally I was out interacting, right? And somebody treated me like I wasn't a donkey right. or a child. As a human, yeah. Yeah. Right. I got treated like somebody recognized me as a human being insofar as I was giving them money, <laughs> right? So yep. in a sense, people are using the money as a way to be treated like a human being instead of the jackass that they are, <laughs> right? Because like, you're either sleeping or working, right? Yeah. So you're either a zombie or a jackass for two-thirds of your life. And then if you're lucky enough to have some money, it's your chance to get out there and be treated like a, a, a real human being. And then you're so blown away that it can even happen. You go to the gear page and you're like, man, I really props to the dudes over at amazingpedalspectacular.com for the excellent customer service I got. You know, they had it in stock. They shipped it to me. Yeah, the and same I day. Sent, <laughs> I sent 17 emails and he replied to each one. Toads, dude's a total pro. You know, it, it's like, I guess people are so amazed, right, that they can get treated like, you know, <laughs> not not the donkey they are, right, that they got. I'm, like, I'm wondering, if, but we, we probably might, we might not have the time this time around, but it, when you take that a little bit further, it's like, that person is treating them that way, but that person feels like a donkey or a child, right? So they're like, what's the little like? Yeah. So imagine you're the employee right. of some nondescript online outlet for guitar pedals. And you're, you're dealing with a 15th email from this idiot. Like, right. yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ, man. You know, yeah, it, you know. Yeah, like, you've you went know. to delete it, but then your boss, yeah, gives you crap. Yep. Put right. the because diaper back on. Email, how did we do? Thumbs up, thumbs down, right. you know, and every business lives in mortal fear that you're going to use, you know, leave a bad Yelp review. Or oh something. God. Yep. Sure. Yep. That's uh, that. Right. It's just, but that's the, but the point is, it's like in, in spectacular world, the only place you get treated like you're something more than a donkey is in the world of when you're buying stuff. All right. doesn't matter what it is. Like one time I bought something from Sweetwater, you know how they always call you up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know? So it was funny. Like just out of the blue, I get this call, and uh, I didn't even answer. It just goes to voicemail, and it's like, "Hey, Mark, it's you know whoever it was from Sweetwater, and I was just calling to check up to see how that um, uh, the um, um, how that thing worked out for you." <laughs> <laughs> I thought, oh man, I gotta save this recording and put it in a song. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. You know? And it was like you could just seem like I don't even know what this guy bought. Doesn't make right. a thing. How's that thing working out for you? <laughs> Doesn't matter as long as you buy something. Look, I think if you were so freaking lonely, you just bought things so that the dude from Sweetwater would give you a ring, right? Oh yeah, it's my it's my sales engineer. Yeah, yeah, I'm buddy. I'm an important guy yeah. because I bought that thing. And he's calling up to ask me about. He didn't thing. have to call me. He just did it because he wanted to. Yeah. Right. I actually, I got pissed off at the guys at Sweetwater once, and I told him, I said, "Stop calling me. Don't ever call me again." And like ninety seconds later, some manager calls me up, and he wants to talk about not calling me. <laughs> I'm like, oh my god! I mean, you can't escape it if you buy something. Right. So imagine if you're that lonely, you just buy crap. So some dude at Sweetwater will call you up and make sure that you're totally satisfied with the thing, whatever the thing is, 
Who cares? Right. Right. Yeah. You yeah. could you could buy a pack of strings. Right. Like you could do this. You can you can finance a set of Diodario strings for four years with zero percent interest. For three cents. So do the math. It's like you know four cents per month for four right. years or whatever it is for a pack of strings. But you know they're going to call me. <laughs> I'm going to get treated like a like a rock star here from my sales engineer. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's awesome. <laughs> so this is the kind of bizarre world. I mean, this is just a little tiny stupid, you know, crouton of what's going yeah. on in 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 a spectacular economy. So the question is is where do we go? How do, is there any change? Is it something that it's going to inevitable cycle where it's going to keep keep doing the same routine again and again and again? I mean, you look at it that given the ideas that were put forth in the beginning of the interview, there seems to be that no aspect of society, whether it, personal interaction, the religious aspect, political aspect, entertainment, it doesn't matter. It's part of that thing. And there's, a, I can't, I mean, from what I've, we, you've shared and from what I've read cursorily and everything else, I can't see any aspect that isn't completely involved with it, nor a way to completely disconnect. It's like you're gonna touch something, some aspect of it, no matter what you do. So, is this something where it eventually just becomes too big and it poof collapses on itself and it's Mad Max? Is this something that <laughs> will continue to, you know, self perpetuate to the extremes to where you know we are watching Jackass, seeing somebody die? You know, it's like let's see if I can jump through this guillotine before it get gets oh shot. Oh man, that's he only made it three seconds. Yeah, Which is exactly. better than the two seconds the other guy did. Yeah. <laughs> That's well, a, I mean, well, part of this is that, you know, that once the spectacle achieves autonomy, then any critique of it actually uh, is already contained within it. So, mm -hmm. like, you know, it, so it can withstand any critique. It generates its own self-negation. Its own critique is already self-generated by it. Yeah. You know, so that it's like, so that it can already absorb those negative energies, right? And plus, then it gives people a chance. So some people can adopt like the cynical pose. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I'm just too cool for this stuff. I'm, I'm not, no one's going to fool me, right? But that's already embedded in the spectacle. Yep. That's yeah. cynical. In other words, I mean, it makes it even more powerful that a person can adopt a kind of cynical distance to spectacle because what that means is that person's actually more subjugated by the spectacle exactly. than the person who just kind of naively and idiotically just abandons himself to it right it's the person who thinks that they're they're right. separated from it or they've got some kind of angle they're even more captivated by it yeah so in a sense, anti-spectacle is already spectacle itself. Yep. Right? And so his solution comes back because he's a good Marxist. Oh, it has to be somehow some kind of revolutionary movement that brings us down. But, of course, we know that revolutionary movements are more or less a fiction <laughs> from the standpoint of 2021. Mm -hmm. right? um, so spectacle is able to mobilize its own self-defense forces if you want to think about it like that and even you know uh you know you're two two cool academics you know who can be cynics or something like that they're even more duped 
by the by the spectacle than just the naive idiot who just is abandoning themselves to it. Mm-hmm. So then what is the, what is the thing that can counteract spectacle? And it could be a the question of perhaps spectacle spectacle is something that has always been there and we're just more acutely aware of it from Guy's uh, theoretical thing but he mainly it's not like he invented the idea of spectacle right. it was more of a oh i observe this oh this tends to be consistent going both ways you know like as far back as he could see at the time when he wrote the book and then where we're at now and it seems to be yeah for the foreseeable future as far as i can see there's going to be no end to it even if technology goes poof there's still the proto uh, religious or um primal religious aspects of things that carried that out you know f- why is fire entertaining i don't know we just stand around and look at a fire for some reason <laughs> yeah but it, it is to an extent spectacle you know whether that has to do with an evolutionary force of knowing that hey there's going to be meat cooking on that fire or fire is warm or whichever there's this engagement level that happens to something that captures at the most visceral level a, a physical watching of it and then it just perpetuates itself from that well so, so- but again, so the primal religious stuff was was energizing to the participants, whereas spectacle is de-energizing to the participants. So then the only possibility here is that spectacle becomes so all-consuming, literally consumes all, and exhausts its human host, if you want to think about <laughs> it like that, so that it would just collapse under a kind of inability to mobilize and extract attention, energy, money, and things like that. Now, given that you, the proposal that uh, the the primal religious aspects energize people, would that give another side to the coin of spectacle in itself, that there's spectacle that is energizing, spectacle that's not? So it's not necessarily like, it's two sides of, it would it be two sides of one coin or would it be a yin and a yang type of interaction uh, with the... I don't don't think so, because actually, to go to your thing, two sides of the same coin, he says in the book explicitly that spectacle is the other side of money. And, you know, he's a Marxist, so what is money? To a Marxist, money is dead people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's all it is. Money is dead people. So what spectacle is, is uh, it really is a vast global system of converting live human beings into corpses that <laughs> sort of like reappear as spectral, spectral images mm-hmm. in the ocean of uh, disconnect. Everything is disconnected, uh, representations and images and things like that. So the end of spectacle would quite literally be the end of human life. So once, it basically has a desire to consume everything living and turn it into uh, images and representations and symbols and things like that that can draw attention. So the limit built into spectacle is it's simply its inability to attract attention anymore. So once you could have so much spectacle that an image can only attract one or two people, obviously that's not going to work or all human life becomes extinguished and there's nobody to pay attention, Mm, right? So uh, who knows? I mean, th- there's, there's, there's no recipe or any kind of formula. You could imagine spectacle working itself out to a logic whereby there's one, one image 
that's all consuming that every person on earth is paying attention to. That's pretty hard to imagine, but we can imagine certain images and representations that can attract tens of millions or even hundreds of millions of people. Yeah. You know, even in like the rather superficial world, I guess, in the big picture, you know, guitar music isn't the most important thing in the world. But I mean, everybody knows the Beatles, right? <laughs> and so that's a, yeah. that's, that's an image, the Beatles, that can attract tens of millions of people, maybe even hundreds of millions of people. They can attract their attention, at least, uh, at least even today in 2021, at least momentarily. But so it would be, it would be tough to imagine uh, a, a, literally an all-consuming image, one thing that could captivate the entire world. You know, um, at best you have images like, you know, uh, religious iconography and things like that, that, that can attract hundreds of millions, but right. even the world gods, you know, they have a, there's a basically competition for that. Well, or in like, the realm I mean, of money, politi political know. assassinations had some of that, right? I mean, the and then, and then of course there's money. I mean, there's real wars fought. People die, uh, when it comes to, uh, a choice that a nation makes on how it's going to reserve, uh, denominate its reserves, what kind of currency it's going to use to buy things, you know? So like, for yeah. example, when, uh, you know, Iraq decided it, Iraq made a, a number of mistakes in the seventies, <laughs> like it was going to nationalize its own oil industry. In other words, they were going to set the prices for their oil. And, uh, and secondly, they decided, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to be the, uh, you know, the, the lackeys of America. So we're going to stop using the dollar. Mm -hmm. Well, think about it. If you're not using the dollar, then it's not really a dollar. If you're not using the money, it's not money. So is there any greater threat to American power? Yeah, yeah. Than countries saying we don't want to use the dollar anymore. <laughs> so uh, to so finish the, that thought I had was that once a nation decides, you know, we're, we're not going to use the dollar. There's no greater threat to the United States than if countries stop using the dollar. And so yeah. when Iraq made those decisions, it basically sealed it. It, it put that country on the list mm -hmm. that we're going to turn you into a parking lot. Yeah. You know? And that's what happened. That was its big sin in the 70s was, you know, disobedience. Right. And threatening the power of the dollar. And of course, not just dollar as thing that moves and circulates and you know mediates transactions, but also the symbol of American hegemony, power, prestige. Yeah. And so uh, you have to enforce that. You have to make global actors like states use your dollar and, and also buy your debt. You know, I mean, if they if the Chinese decide we don't want to buy any more T-bills. Right. We got problems. That's World War Three, right? Well, when I mean, the, they wouldn't do that though because the U.S. just says, "Okay, we won't buy any of your stuff anymore." Yeah, so it's almost like that. You know, that's it's a symbiotic relationship. Right. You want us to buy your stuff, then you know, you need to you need to buy our debt, things like that. I mean, this is why you know having a huge national debt sounds like a terrible idea. Right. But then one of my students asked me one time, you know, how are we ever going to pay that back? How are we pay it off? I'm like, what makes you think it's ever going to get paid off? Yeah. You yep. know, you can always, you can always put a gun to somebody's head and say, 
you need to buy this debt, right? <laughs> and somebody out there will be like, if we don't buy the debt, <laughs> I mean, what's worse? What's worse to kick the can down the road and deal with it 20 years from now or to get shot in the head today, <laughs> right? Because Uncle Sam isn't messing around. We either buy the debt or we got a major problem on our hands. So we'll just buy the debt. And then they never, you know, as soon as, you know, it's time to get your money back, it's whatever. Oh, you need to buy more debt. Oh, yeah, we'll buy more debt, you know? It's, so that's that's really where our power is. You know, the major threat is you don't use the dollar to denominate your reserves or to engage in international transactions. And when you do that, you go to the to the top of the list to get a epic beat down. We turn your whole country into a parking lot and then your leaders will be swinging from the gallows and it will have it on YouTube eight minutes later, because that's what happened to Saddam Hussein. Yeah, yep. sure. His execution was on YouTube within seven minutes. We have no idea how it got there. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> right, right. Just happened to him. Who knows? It's a total mystery. Like in seven minutes later, you know. And uh, but yeah, I mean that's that's basically that's, what it, it made me think too. There's a the people that posted that were also um, they had no control over it, right? They they just thought I have to do like I have to do this. They they had lost um just like the money is in your pocket and you want to spend it. The same with the video, they're like, This has to be posted. Like I have to do this. Like it's an a moral impair you know, whatever. Whatever the however they get to that rationale. Like, they they, they were end up being the victim of it in a sense. The spectacle forced them to take the video and, and share it. It's, it's such a line of lot. It's like if you had that video and, you know, Jim Bob over on the other side of the thing that you saw, he's got his camera phone out too or whatever back then. And it's, he's doing it. It's like, well, if I don't put it up, he's going to put it up. And if he puts it up, he's going to get the clicks. And I might as well get the clicks because somebody's going to get it. And why not me? Like, okay, boom. You know, whoever gets it up there using whatever internet uh, thing that they could, you know, back then. Um, so it uh, it seems like it's a it not, not only is it this the spectacle thing, but it's also that just and it, perhaps human greed created the spectacle, or it's a self feeding cycle. Again, it's like both and human greed feeds the spectacle. The spectacle pushes human greed as being the best thing, and the next thing you know, we got videos of Saddam swinging from a rope just because somebody got it first and decided to capitalize on it. You know, and, and there's a reason why, you know, well, I mean, the, but they might have not even got money for it, though, right? Like they might have not got actually anything tangible. Oh, well, in, in, in the case of the Saddam Hussein execution, I mean, well, that, was, really, that was the military itself. Yeah. I mean, that order had to come from the commander in chief to put that thing up on the internet. <laughs> that didn't just slip out like that, that was in the back of my head. I, as I was saying that, I'm like, that wasn't like, oh, I, I guess I'm just going to put this up. That was like, put it up. We need everybody to see this. Okay. Yeah, right. But to, but to your point, though, it's like now, of course, there's almost a, a duty or an imperative that you need to start recording everything you do and then load it up to YouTube. Right. And so now, I mean, there's like, because yeah, in reality, it's like everyone's life is all screwed up and it's, <laughs> you know, yep. it's not magical. Uh, you're treated like a donkey or you're asleep. And so then you're the, the hours that you're awake and not at work. You're now uh, basically 
there's an injunction to, well, you need to record everything and create a glossy version, a spectacular version of your life that stands in stark contrast to the donkey life that you actually live. Yeah. Oh, totally. Right? And so you just can't eat dinner. You have to have, oh, here's the clip of us. Uh, we're at the restaurant and here's what we're having. And then we're walking out to our new Corvette and then we're doing this and we're doing that. So every, everything you see on social media is like the spectacular version. Mm -hmm. right? So it's all the juiced up hyped version of what's really going on. And what you don't see is all the, you know, the credit card debt, uh -oh. horrible relationships. And this goes to the point of the book really is that spectacle dissolves all the relationships. Everything is supposed to. So the whole point of like Hegelian philosophy was it is arriving at a point where you could see how everything is conceptually and holistically united with, you know, with itself. And that spectacular society is the world where all relations are severed and dissolved so that the, all the images exist independently autonomously separated from anything in the real world. It's just mystified, free floating and amazing. Right. So it's it. it so the what's going on underneath it is that you don't see the, the what's really going on, the debt, the misery, the, right. the fabrication that no one's really paying attention. It's just the illusion that people are paying attention. <clears throat> So that I can draw even, you know, actual attention and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, the, everything has to be spectacularly done, right? And devoid of any references to any kind of material reality. And really the connection, like, you know, because all the social media is just a continuous stream of images. Mm -hmm. you know, I call Facebook the meme stream. Right. It's just, you know, oh, here's the cat doing the funny thing. Here's the guys racing the Corvettes. Next thing is a boat on fire. Next thing is uh, Trump says something idiotic. Next thing is, you know, and it's just disconnected, no context, devoid of any connection to anything. Well, I don't think there is a connection. The connection is to keep your attention on those things. So whatever is going to get the most attention from you, I mean, they're designed it to do that. And that's why they get those things in that particular order. They watch what you stop. Like as you're scrolling, you know, back when I had Facebook on my phone, it became clear that if I stopped on a particular thing, not even to click on it, but if I slowed down on a particular thing and then sped up through it, all of a sudden that whatever that particular subject. Those kind was, of things pop up again. Start. Yeah. Oh, those sure. start to become more frequent and so on. So it's Totally, like there, there's the 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 man behind the the, the curtain. <laughs> yeah, well, right. I mean, so like machine machine learning. I'm gonna bring in some engineering here. That machine learning, the way those things work, is Sorry. totally uh, the way the best way it works is through randomization. So you just give it, let it do what it won't, like anything, and and I think that's what happens because a lot of those like Facebook algorithms and stuff, they're built on machine learning. So to just say. Well, you've never watched a cat video, but I'm going to just throw it up there anyway and just see what happens. And and then you may stop on it and like, oh, see. So then it, it starts to – it learns something every time just by throwing stuff out there. And it's, it needs to be randomized to get the best model in the end. So if you really want a model of how something's going to work, um, whether you're applying it to – 
automating a car or to a person, you know, it's, you really, the best models are not the ones that we hard code. We can, like, if I sit there and say, I think so-and-so like this because they're 37 year old male, blah, blah, blah. Um, that doesn't work. Like that's, that's a failed thing. You have to have this bit of random randomization. And we probably do this in conversation too. We kind of, we meet somebody, how's the weather, whatever. And then you kind of drop little things just to see how people react. And then we can kind of react and, and then it might turn into this or it might turn into that, but we're always trying to see where the conversation goes to actually learn who this, you know, person is that we're interacting with. Well, you know, uh, my wife and I, we walk around the block, you know, every day and, and it, it's become like a joke. We get to a certain spot in the road and we know this is the part of the walk where we start talking about something that we've never talked about before so that we know That's that our devices are listening to us. And so I'll bring up something like Harley Davidson motorcycles. <laughs> when have we ever talked about that? I get back to the house Next time I go on Facebook, the first thing I see is an ad for Harley Davidson motorcycle. Mm. Or we see uh, we saw three Jeeps at, at a house. And I said, wow, check out that three Jeeps in one driveway. As soon as I got back on Facebook, first ad I see, Jeep. You know? So, I mean, there's, there's like you're saying, a random element. But there's also this the listening. continuous surveillance. Yeah, sure. You know, and, and this is another feature of what he talked. He talks explicitly about this in the Society of the Spectacle book, that there's continuous surveillance. You know, there was this old idea, you know, the, the panopticon <laughs> theory. Uh, the panopticon was quite literally, they designed prisons so that there was nowhere you could be in the prison without being under constant surveillance 24-7. There was no place to hide. There was no place that the, the, the eye wasn't on you. That was the idea. And Spectacle takes that idea of the panoptic surveillance. And, and obviously now, by 2021, I mean, that kind of logic is, I mean, you, there's nothing you can do or not do that your devices aren't aware of. You know, like I'll do something, get out of bed, my watch goes, you did it. <laughs> you know, I was like, I'm getting, I'm getting like appraised just for getting out of bed. You did it. <laughs> you can, you can do this. And you're, you're watching like a human. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, man. You know, I did it. I got out of bed. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's constantly you're up yeah, again. We, it we monitors know. everything. It knows where you're going. It knows what you're talking about. And it sells this information to Google and Facebook and whoever else. So it's just constant, like, I'm thinking, oh, I see Jeep. I'm thinking Jeep. Next thing I get on Facebook, Jeep, <laughs> right? I mean, it's like, oh, now, I mean, you're just trapped inside this self-perpetuating, you know, hologram or whatever. And as soon as you have a thought, the visual image pops, like literally pops up right. in front of your face. I say the word Jeep, next thing I see are images of Jeeps. On my device. Maybe that, maybe that's part of the, the spectacle evolution, right? Is it maybe in some sense was more figurative before and it moves towards more literal because that's just it's it's building itself up to the point where it can instantly, you know, give you that feedback 
whatever that is. Well, like, so when he's, you know, when he's writing this in like 67, yeah, or when it comes out in English translation in 71 or 72, whatever it was, you know, the idea of mass media, which he talks a little bit about mass media, the idea is, okay, because when I was a kid, there was only like three channels on TV. Yeah, right. You know, and it's like, you know, you turn on one and it's like, you need this dishwashing soap. It's the best. And then you click on CBS. Oh, this dishwashing soap's the best. So they're hitting everybody with this, oh, this dishwashing soap. And it's like, man, if we could only brainwash these people, that'd be great, you know? But now it's not even, oh, you're getting hammered by this continuous message about this laundry detergent or something like that. Now it's just you have a thought. Oh, a Jeep. There's so many Jeeps at that house or whatever. And then you say the word Jeep. There's the signifier. I, I utter the word. My device picks it up, sends it to Facebook. They pay them something for that, for me uttering the word. Yeah. And like magic incantation. So, so can, we all, can we all uh, text each other image. our pictures of the Jeep ad that pops up on our thing after this conversation? Yeah, right. <laughs> Let's see. So it's like it's like it's like magic. I just say the word Jeep, boom, I produce the image. Yeah, sure. And that's really different than that old model of hammering you over the head with an ad on TV for yeah. you know, for Jeep. It's a Jeep thing. It's whatever whatever their slogan was. Yeah. And it's on TV and on radio or something like that. And now instead you just utter the word and magically it produces the image. Right. So I mean, I haven't tried this yet. Maybe I'll say, "Oh, look, a red Jeep," and will it produce red Jeep <laughs> I don't know. Specific, you can get it to go. That yeah. So then, the next step in the spectacle would be, how can I, how can I tap into this person's mind without them actually verbalizing or giving us the signifier? How can I produce an image, satisfy this person's desire for an image without even them saying it? Yeah, sure. Well, I think that's, they're already doing that to an extent with this, the slowing down of the scrolling. It's like there's clearly some mo marketing guy that goes, well, you know, the the line between mindless scrolling and somewhat attention is like <laughs> seconds. So if they're scrolling and it happens to slow down, that's clearly they're looking at that. So okay, let's just that, that particular thing. It's not people doing it now, right? It's, a, well, yeah. it's an algorithm. Yeah. That evaluates it. Yeah. It's some, it's some guy did the research, plugged it into the algorithm, and the algorithm. Well, I don't know. I think the, the, the we created a um, place for the algorithm to live, in a sense. Yeah. Well, now and, also, and, if you've got a camera on your computer, it's watching you sometimes, I guess. Yeah. And it's it's monitoring where your eye is going to. And then, so if you're on Facebook and they've got the ads in certain spots, and if, you, if you've got your settings set wrong to give Facebook permission to use your camera. It's looking at, it knows where your eyes are like focused on and they know they know what's on that part of the screen. Oh, they want more of that. You might not even be consciously aware of what you're looking at, but if your eye gravitates towards something, oh, it went there twice, give them more of that, you know, in the feed. <laughs> that was just bizarre stuff. I don't, I don't know if it's still true, but just a couple of years ago, I remember reading about Google that they still make most of their money from ads. Yeah, right. It's still the and it's the and Google is interesting because you don't really see them. The ads on Google is not like the pop up thing that gets in your face. It's just you search, and certain things rise to the top sure. for some reason. 
and when they rise to the top, they, uh, you know, that they they get paid for it. So, it, which is interesting, pretty fascinating. Yeah, you can search for some you know well known website, and the first link is always the paid ad. Oh, I know. And then the next one is I oh, just go to their website directly. Mm-hmm. So you're faced with the dilemma: which one do I choose? Right. If I pick the one at the top, I'm get, they're going to have to shell out two cents or four cents or something. Right. And if I pick the one at the bottom, I, I'm not going to charge that company any money. <laughs> well, it's like the most embarrassing thing I ever did as a tech guy was build a computer and then hop on to go get Google Chrome and immediately pick the ad that had the virus in it. For Like I Googled it. It's like Google Chrome. I'm on Google's website. And the first ad was malware for Google Chrome. And I click. I'm like... Uh, well, at least I have a fresh copy of Windows reinstall, you know, like wiped it out, but felt like oh, it hurt. But you know, that's what some guys will do. They'll just throw the money at it, put the so that they get that it's close enough. I mean, Google's gotten a lot better at it from that time that I did that like eight years ago or whichever, but it's still, it's, uh, those things, it, it learns, it's watching and it grows. <laughs> yeah. like a tagline to a movie. So. Yeah. What kind of movie? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going in that direction, but okay. <laughs> it could be, I was thinking horror. I was thinking horror. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Good. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. That's yeah. good. So this has been absolutely fascinating conversation. I mean, I could still keep going, but uh, are, are we all down with keeping going a little bit or what? Whatever you guys want to do. So... Yeah, I will just say that the problem with the book, Society of the Spectacle, is that, you know, I can remember the first time I tried to read in grad school, you just, you're going to be overwhelmed because of all the underlying presuppositions that you're not aware of. It's like reading uh, Ulysses or something, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time and energy, you know, reading all the stuff that brings the book kind of to life, you know, so that you can appreciate it. Mm. And, uh, so, you know, that's why I tried to try to boil it down to a few key concepts, some of the important stuff. But I think really when I, I reread it, you know, in the last couple of days, I was poking around in it again. And it really struck me. I was like, yeah, I mean, the, the central thing here is, is it's no longer just capital in that old fashioned sense of capitalism. There's some definitely something different going on here, you know. And when he talks about it, it's the the flip side of money, you know, that it's, that it's, it's money's new capacity to worship. Yeah. Instead of us worshiping money, we've now passed over into a kind of reality where money now has the the capacity to worship itself, you know, and instead of us using money as a way to aggrandize ourselves, money now uses us as a means to uh, aggrandize itself which raises weird metaphysical problems. It's like, you know, the real danger here is seeing money as basically or spectacle as a new planetary God, mm-hmm. you know, because it reads like a theology thing. Like there's a new God in the world. It, there's one, there's one God and it's called spectacle, you know, and the, and the real problem here is uh, reading it and interpreting it in a way such that this is like an actual uh, an actual mind at work out there, separate from human beings. And that's, of course, not what they're doing. This is not a new theology. 
This is not like a transcendental subject or ego that's yeah. out there. Like imagine all human beings gone off the face of the earth, like, uh, you know, we all nuked. Spectacle would not persist beyond that. Yeah, true. You know, it could not survive the decimation of the destruction of the human race. The uh, spectacle doesn't survive past that. But what they're getting at is this idea of a collective consciousness or a collective unconsciousness. It's just a peculiar form of thought that is uh, possible under certain con social conditions. You know, certain forms of social organization or, and or social disorganization permit and even um, sort of enforce a peculiar mode of thinking, acting, and feeling that takes on spectacular qualities and aspects. You know, like the feeling like I've got money, I must spend it, right? I've got one guitar, but I obviously need two. And if you get two, you have to have four, you know? It's like right. that way of thinking is very strange, historically speaking. Mm -hmm. You know, even to my parents, you know, I remember when, you know, when, when I discovered Van Halen and it's like, I need, a, I need an electric guitar, my God. And my mom's like, oh, we've got one of those somewhere. We, what? Yeah. You're like, oh, your dad's got in the closet. He's got an electric guitar? Oh, you know, it, it comes out, you know, and it's a ukulele. Sure. You know, and it's like, well, that's good enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it's not. He's not playing a ukulele. It's well, learn how to play that, and then we'll see later. You know, I, I just saw my ninety-two-year-old grandfather, and I didn't know this. His his dad apparently played violin, which my grandfather also didn't know until he was like fifteen, when some kid down the street was like, "Oh, we really need a violin or whatever." And he's like, "Oh, I got one." <laughs> it's like. And they're like, wait, why you have one? Like the kids, no. they they're like, and apparently he was pretty good at it. At one point, he was playing, he was doing like the silent movie thing, and playing violin mm -hmm. for it, and you know, doing gigs as a kid or whatever. But just stopped at some point, and just, they're in the closet. So yeah, that kind of corroborates what you were just saying. Yeah, I mean, so from my parents' standpoint, a, a ukulele is a guitar, is a whatever. What difference yeah. does it make? You know. Uh, and so the idea that you would need more, I mean, you've already got this thing, what would you need more? So, I mean, how many people do you personally know that just own one guitar? I mean, that's <laughs> is that what, the meme that was going uh, around? Did you see that one, Mark? It was <laughs> like, uh, it, yeah, it was like, well, how many guitars do you have or do you have or something? And it's like, oh, um, or what is it? How many guitars does a normal person have? You're like, Oh, about, I don't know, 10 or so. <laughs> you know, and he's like, that sounds like a, a guitar fanatic. You know, guitar fanatics have like 25 or so. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds yeah. like a psycho. No, well, psychos don't normally have guitars. <laughs> no, like, they only have one. They only have one. Yeah, yeah. psychos only have one guitar. And he's like, well, that sounds like a normal person. He's like, well, we already went over that. A normal person has, you know, five to 10 guitars. Yeah, right. <laughs> that, I mean, that's so good. <laughs> so good. I, mean, I, I literally, I don't know a single person who owns a guitar, just the guitar, you know? I, like, I guess I know two people that are like that, but they don't really play, you know? It's like, yeah, they're not. Yeah. It's, but it's way down the list play. of priorities. Yeah. And you, you see it all the time. It's like, uh, especially on like the gear page or whatever. It's like, I just bought this guitar, right? right? 
Um, they've added one to their stable or their roster or their, you know, so they get this thing going and it's like, and as soon as they buy it, like, hey, I just got this new Telecaster and now I need to, what would go well with a Telecaster? <laughs> if I already got the Tele, what's the next thing? And I'm like, dude, have, you know, you just got the Tele. Why don't you just play the Tele? Sure. Well, no, but I need what I need to go with the Tele. It's like, right. what? I need a train wreck, obviously. Yeah, right. Yeah, this just doesn't have the B-bender in it. I need to tell you with a B-bender. Right. Well, and then also to your point, like as soon as you get it, I would you notice a lot on a place like that, and we're probably all guilty of this, is you get it and you're like, this is it, man. This is the best guitar, pedal, amp, whatever, that I've ever used ever. It's just, This is it. And then like a month later, they're selling it or they're oh, buying gosh, something sure. else because it's... It's like, well, I thought that was the greatest thing since, you know. Well, that's that to go back to the spectacular logic. Yeah. When you don't have it, you want it. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Because it's not even like, because think about it. If you're doing this all online, you're only seeing images of the thing. Sure. Mm -hmm. So there's there's what you want, right? And you're seeing the images of it. And the disappointment comes when they actually deliver the thing. Right. So you've been looking at the images and your imagination is running wild. And it's like, ah, I can't wait to get the thing. I can't wait to get it. And it arrives, you unbox it. There it is. You play it a little bit. And it's like the real thing with the Coke. Right. You want something out of the can of Coke that's not in the can of Coke. Right. The whole thing had its magic when it was something you didn't possess. As soon as you take possession of it, it the whatever that supplement was. It's suddenly not there. That, that reminds me. Oh, Star go ahead, Dan. Yeah, yeah the, the Star Trek episode with uh, Spock. I mean, the original series where he was uh, getting like some. He had to do something to get this woman to be. It's, it was like him and another rival were fighting for a particular woman. I can't remember the exact plot line, but uh, it was something like that. And anyways, so they do this big battle and Spock throws a match because he just doesn't want to get married or whatever. And <laughs> at the end of it, he's just like, he was talking with the dude and he's like, you'll find that wanting is much better than having, you know, <laughs> right, right. having isn't as good as wanting. And it's totally true. I mean, maybe that's factor culture or maybe that's just something that's innately obvious to somebody that goes through life. We always think that this, oh, this is going to be the next greatest thing. And then you get it and it's like, well, it's nice, but it's definitely not as cracked up. as. I mean, there are a few things that aren't that are that good. Like when I got my Thames. I was pretty darn happy. You know, I was super thrilled when I got that guitar. That was totally worth it. I'm still on that thing. That's my primary instrument all the time uh, with that. And I think it's a phenomenal thing. And I grant, I got another classical guitar, but I didn't get that to enhance the like, oh, I just need this other really bang and this other one. It was like, no, I just don't feel like carrying my concert guitar to go teach lessons to children. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be There's waiting. There's a around. price thing though there. So if if you if it wasn't so pricey to buy a high end classical guitar, you you'd probably that's part of the thing that slows you down. Just logistics, I think. I'm sure. Well, yeah, clearly, you know, I'm not going to be dropping another 10k in another guitar. I mean, unless you know, I, I hate my wife and I want to prove it to her. So. <laughs> well, <laughs> But before uh, I forget this thought, irrefutable proof. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You were talking about the Coke Pepsi thing, right, or whatever. And uh, you know, sometimes you you like think, oh, I I want to start a let's say I want to I want to start a company and I want it to be the greatest thing ever. 
and it gets so complicated, right? You just crazy things. But then you look and you see like one of the biggest companies in the world makes a drink with sugar, you know, corn syrup, a little mm-hmm. bit of flavor and some fizziness that like any of us could probably make something that tastes as good. Um, yet we don't, that thing is not, you know, like maybe that's all you really need is something simple. That's generally okay. But then you got to turn and turn the spectacular up part of it so that people want it, need it, all these other kind of things, even though they could just make something maybe better themselves or whatever else. Yeah, well, um, if you make it yourself, then you're not participating in spectacular culture. Yeah. You, haven't, you have not obeyed the imperative to buy something. And really buying something in the spectacular world, the buying of something means that you didn't buy something else. So let's say that you want a new amp. Well, you got a problem, right? Because you got a sound in your head, but there's eight companies that can satisfy that sound, right? So you can't make up your mind. Do you want a Marshall? Do you want a Boogie? Do you want a Friedman? Do you want a Bogner? Do you want a whatever? Yeah. So eventually you're going to make a choice. But if you bought Bogner, you didn't buy the Bogner. You did not buy the other seven amps. Sure. So buying something automatically also means not buying a multiplicity of alternatives. Mm-hmm. So if when the moment comes that you have to, okay, I have to sell, I buy the Bogner. Well, that just means you didn't get the Boogie, you didn't get the Marshall, you didn't get the Friedman. It's like, as soon as so this is the buyer's regret, the buyer's remorse, mm-hmm. as soon as you buy the thing you wanted, you instantly feel regret because I didn't get the buyer. Right. Because there was a world of opportunity prior to buying it, right? You said, yeah. wow, I could imagine myself with a Mesa and I could imagine myself with a Friedman. Just think what that would look like. Yeah, so when you go on YouTube and it's like, uh, it's Gear Dude here, and it's like yeah. they literally like are entombed <laughs> in different amps, a room of nothing but guitar head, amp heads, you know? Right. And so, like, there's one dude. He's like literally, he looks like he's entombed in I a think I know closet. I think I've seen with one nothing of but amplifiers stacked up. And that was the guy who couldn't live with the fact that you know, well, maybe these companies gave it to him. Who knows? But. I mean, you can see, see, it's like I couldn't live with the thought of when I bought the Freedman, what I was really doing was not buying the Bogner and the Boogie and the Marshall and the X, the Y, and the Z. And so I have to get it all, right? But there's no end to that because as soon as you bought the Bogner, right, you bought the Bogner Helios 100, and then you bought these other things. And by the time four or five years go down the road, it's like, well, Bogner's come out with something else. Right. Oh, and it's Helios. so much better than the Helios, yeah. Oh, it's got an extra switch on it. Right. Oh, my God. And pretty soon, it's like this amp has the one switch that your current amp doesn't have. So, like, Friedman put up the, the BE100. And then, so everybody's like, yeah, this is the coolest amp ever. And then they come out with the BE100 Deluxe. Right. Oh, it's got this switch. And you're like, oh, my God, I can't live without that switch. And right. so... All your attention goes to the switch. This thing, and it's like, okay, it makes it sound a little different. Right. And when you get it, you're be like, oh, didn't make that much of a difference. And you just leave it in yeah. the original mode anyway. Right. So you're like, yeah, I like classic anyways. And so it's like everything came down to like this switch. 
because so in, in like there was a French uh, psychoanalyst named Lacan, and he would call that like uh, fixation point, some little thing that really doesn't amount, amount to much, but it becomes like this thing that you focus in on. It's like it just drives you crazy, but it's got this extra switch on it, and you can't live without it. And all of a sudden, it just becomes this this little point that becomes like a black hole of desire that it just it grabs you. It has like a gravitational effect. And you just orbit around it until finally you scrape together the money, right, to escape the pull of the little switch yeah. that this amp. And then you buy it, and it's like, eh, I still want a boogie. Why did I buy that? Yeah. 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 Or like, you know, oh, Bachner's got a new pedal, and it has the word plexi on it. Oh, my God. And think about how the word plexi is like a black hole of desire in the guitar right. world. Oh, <laughs> Bachner's got a new pedal out, right? It's version two right of this thing and in the new version it's got the word flexi on it and all you have to do is put the word plexi on it and people go berserk right over the word they yeah. literally it's over the word plexi right the biggest thing is does it go to 11 right it's got to go to 11 well even that people do that right and then sure. <laughs> it instantly not, well this version has 11 or i saw on the gear page one time somebody had put out a pedal some kind of booster pedal and it came stocked with a certain color uh, knob. And then somebody got a different color knob. And so the whole thread became about the different color knob on that pedal. And then it, it turned into, I want that color knob. Yeah. And so they're contacting the factory <laughs> to get the blue knob instead of the trans. Oh. And it's just like, my God, what are these people? It doesn't sound any different, but it just became... Yeah. Oh my God, I have to have the blue knob. That it's that fixation point. It's completely irrelevant. It's a different color knob. It has nothing to do with the, with the electronics. And it's like, gotta have that knob. I will sell all my pedals to get the new pedal with a different color knob on it. It's amazing. <laughs> that's that's the spectacle. Yeah, we are fickle spectacle creatures. And this has been one heck of a conversation. Yeah, this has been awesome. Yeah, we did that. I want a part two, but I I also I don't know if I'm going to stay awake for part two. Right, this current thing, and again, it's a partially my fault. We're starting so late, partially. That's okay. I'm still with you. Yeah, we'll yeah. Uh, we'll we'll have to bring you back, Mark. I'm sure there's plenty more. Oh yeah, to we dive barely into. surface of this whole thing. Like I want to see like for part two, I really want more depth thing into how this directly relates to music and uh, well, music in general. Like the, how to, those ideas, like now that we've got a baseline of how this kind of functions and, and a geopolitical and a personal way and consumeristic way, how do all those particular factors factor directly in with spectacle culture and music in particular, like keeping it laser focused on this is why it's particularly why we have, you know, the Grammys in the situation that they're at. And what <laughs> so, yeah, sure. Yeah, that we'll do that. Great. Let's do that in we'll two do. weeks or something. <laughs> okay. I, I'm totally down with that. Alrighty, I am too. Awesome. All right. Excellent. Well, if you've all stayed with us this late. Which you should exactly. have. That, that one special person. That, hey, it's a spectacle. So we got the one roped in. And right. hopefully it'll be a self-feeding thing. And next time we'll have two. And then four. It'll be an exponential thing. Right. But uh, that that would be great, and this is an absolutely fantastic. Uh, Mark, j thank you for coming on. This is 
super fascinating. My pleasure. Thanks. <laughs> Great. Very cool. So thanks you all for listening and we will catch you on the next time. Uh, with which, uh, I don't know, the spectacle of me and Tim <laughs> arguing about different musical things. And then we'll bring Mark back in to push us further down the rabbit hole. The, the right. spectacle of Mac users, right? That's what we're <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yet, <laughs> make sure it's recording. That's right. right. <laughs> At least right. my mic <laughs> works. <laughs> uh, it wasn't my mic, it was the headphones. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, guys. See you. All right. See you, Mark. <laughs>